Well, this morning I'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We're reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30, as we continue this series from the Sermon on the Mount. Here now is the word of the Lord. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Please be seated. So let me first say that this is, this is a rather sensitive message. It's a message that churches are often hesitant to address. But in a similar manner to last week's message on unresolved anger, the topic for this week is not just about the action, but of the eyes and the mind, because the thought comes before the act. Here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30, Jesus is telling us, separate yourself from things that tempt us to sin because we're responsible for our own actions. We, we must not try to blame it on somebody else or something else. In the next 25 minutes, we're going to spend some time unpacking this passage, including how we should understand its application to our lives today. So let's have a very quick review of what we've covered so far. We started out with a, an overview on January 8th. January 15th, we talked about being salt and light to those around us. January 22nd, we talked about how Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to replace it. And then last week, we covered how Jesus reminds them, don't allow unresolved anger to get a foothold in your lives, because it poisons our relationship with others and with God, and because over the span of time, unresolved anger leads to spite, hate, verbal tirades, physical violence, possibly even the danger of being a a threat to yourself or to someone else. Now, in today's passage, Jesus speaks on the matter of marital faithfulness, and how this is a matter of the heart and the mind, not just the body. Now, we've talked about these antithesis passages that he uses here. Oh, boy, I'm trying to go back some, guys, and it's just not going. There we are, antithesis. Thank you. Jesus says, it is written this, but I say unto you this. Last week we covered the first one of these, and that was regarding anger and its relationship to murder. This week, Jesus focuses on lust and adultery. It's an even more messy topic. It's even less comfortable to discuss. But here in verse 27 to 30, there are actually two sections to the passage. In the first two verses, it says that the person who lusts after someone else has already committed committed adultery in their heart and their mind. They've already broken the seventh commandment. And in the second part of this, verse 29 and 30, says these sins have to be forcibly removed from our lives or they may lead us to final judgment if they're continued in an unrepentant manner. And that's the basis for a proper, and I emphasize a proper, application of the concept of separation. If someone or something tempts you to sin, put some distance between yourself and the source of that. But the bottom line is we're responsible for our actions. The fact that someone or somebody else might be a factor doesn't release us from our responsibility on this. 
Now, I'm going to say something here that is sensitive, but it is also true. In the past, there have been churches that deal with moral failure within the church in a very unfortunate way. When that happens, they have a very bad habit of essentially holding the woman much more responsible than the man. And then they'll twist scripture to imply all kinds of things. I've even heard them even so far as suggesting that the attraction, the natural attraction between male and female is somehow itself a product of our fallen nature. That's not the way Genesis describes it. God's original creation, there was perfection and beauty in the attraction between Adam and Eve. In the garden, there was no sin in that attraction because there was no sin yet. Sin is what distorted it, not the other way around. And yet on those very sad occasions in which moral failure occurs within the church, it's almost as if the standard response is they seek to blame the woman. I would say this, they do that even if she is underaged. And my response to that would be shame on churches that do that. But the reality is in those very sad instances, the man is the one who is responsible for his actions. If he's tempted, he needs to distance himself from that temptation because the sin is giving in to the temptation. We all face it at different points. It literally walks across the path of our lives. We're responsible for being wise enough to put some distance between ourselves and that. Now, these six antithesis statements, the topics we started last week and they'll continue for the next four weeks after this, they deal with murder, adultery, divorce, the taking of oaths, retaliation, and loving thy neighbor. These antithesis statements function in two ways. First, they speak to a better righteousness that Jesus described several verses earlier. He talks about a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. But they also speak to how Jesus fulfilled the law in terms of the ethics of the kingdom of God. And there is this deliberate contrast that Jesus brings between the, the legalistic teaching of the Pharisees and the higher understanding taught by Jesus. By the way, the form of these verses is a form that's often called didactic. It means it's instructional, it's teaching. He's used to the phrase, you have heard that it was said. That was a commonly used discussion in points of law. But then in the second part of the statement, he says, but I am telling you this. He's going beyond what would be first century Jewish tradition. It gives Jesus' interpretation of the true meaning. As he speaks as the prophesied Messiah, he's basically saying, this is how you were taught. I'm now going to tell you why and what it really means in your daily lives. Now, if we look at those six sets of antithesis statements, they're from Matthew 5, and they run from verse 21 all the way up to 48. Even they come in two groupings. The first two of them deal with the sixth and the seventh commandments, specifically in that order. Then the last four are various ethical issues that Jesus uses to demonstrate who he is, that he is the prophesied Messiah. Now, I might add, if you look at these, the first two are focused at the level of our thoughts when Jesus is speaking, and the other four at the level of our actions. Do you notice that? So let's dig into the passage, the specifics. In verse 27 and 28, Old Testament law stated, it is a sin for a person to have intimate relations with someone other than his or her spouse. Jesus returns to its original intention, saying that even lusting over someone other than your spouse is sin. 
he emphasizes, if the act is wrong, so is the thought. See, to be faithful to your spouse with your body but not your mind still breaks a trust. Jesus is condemning the deliberate, repeated filling of our minds with thoughts that would be sinful if we acted on them. Therefore, they're sinful even if they're just something that we are thinking on. Now let's focus on why that's harmful, okay? Let's focus on why this is harmful. Acting out sinful thoughts causes people to excuse sin rather than to deal with it. In these particular cases, it destroys marriages. It is rebellion against God's word, but here's the one that people often don't think of until it's too late. The person that gets hurt is the innocent one, somebody separate from the people who are committing the sin. And left unchecked, these desires eventually result in wrong actions, and they become a barrier between us and God. Remember, nobody ever did anything that they hadn't first thought about. But then verse 29 and 30, Jesus uses this reference of getting rid of your hand or your eye. He's speaking figuratively. He isn't saying literally gouge your eye out. And I can say that to you because even a person that has lost their eyesight can still lust in their mind. He's using this method called hyperbole, and he's saying if it were your only choice, it's better to go to heaven with one eye or one hand than to go to hell with two. That's what he's speaking of. It's very figurative, very picturesque language. Our problem is that to different degrees, sometimes we tolerate different sins in our lives particularly the secret sins that only ourselves and God know about. If left unchecked, those can cause significant damage over time. Just like unresolved anger last week, so it is with this week's subject. It is better to experience the difficulty of trying to get rid of an addiction or some other obsession than it is to allow that sin to destroy our lives. Now let's look just a little more in depth. We're going to use a process that... Uh, the Greek term exegesis, it simply means to pull the meaning from the passage. He says, Jesus has said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. That term adultery refers to intimate relations outside of a marriage setting. So in a blanket statement, it refers to people who are single, or it's referring to have those relations with somebody you're not married to. But there was an interesting twist at the time in the first century the morality aspect was probably not stressed as much as the view that to do so was taking another man's wife. It was almost viewed as a form of theft. Jesus emphasizes the moral and the ethical side of the question, not the matter of possession. And he's saying that lust is the root of adultery. The thought comes before the act. Notice in verse 28, it says, But I'm telling you, any man that looks on a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, by the way, it says specifically to a man lusting after a woman, it works both ways, though. Just because he wasn't specific in here, that doesn't mean the women are free to lust after the men all they want. Doesn't work that way. For both men and women, today there is a, a destructive force that wasn't so easily available until technology came along. There's such easy access to things that used to be more difficult to access. In the grammar of verse 28, there's a term 
He that looketh upon a woman lustfully, in the classic translations, looketh is an ongoing action with a sinful intention. That's the specific of the uh, original term, and we'll come back to that in a bit. It really means it's repeated and it feeds on itself. It might be translated as keeps on looking. By the way, there's another Greek term. When translated looking lustfully, one of the Greek terms is porneia, which is where the English term pornography finds its root. That's what's used to describe illicit use of God's design of the differences between the genders. Now, I know this is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to stand before you and speak on this. But we do have to realize, since Jesus does, we can't just sort of pretend it's not there. We have to realize something else, too. As we age, particularly as we become quite elderly, while our bodies may not be able to carry out the act, our mind is perfectly capable. And so this is a, this is a challenge that really knows no age limit. Now let's look at verse 29. And this is in the classic translation. Usually I'm referring to the King James Version, but it could be the Geneva Bible or any of those English translations before the King James Version. It says, if thy right eye offend thee. Modern translations say causes you to stumble. It's coming from a Greek term. It's a, it's a rather revealing Greek term. Scandalizo, from which we would derive our English term scandalous. It implies not just the sin, but a sense of controversy about it, a sense of embarrassment about it. Um, the old translations probably reflect the specifics better. The new translations probably help us see the broader application better. But you notice Jesus uses a term where he talks about the specifics of the right eye or the right hand. Maybe this is because, at least in history, that was seen as the more powerful side. Also, Jesus was seated at the right hand of God the Father. By the way, those of you that are southpaws, left-handers, this does not mean you're lesser in God's eyes. Don't misunderstand that issue. But I'm familiar with stories years ago of churches in which they saw children starting to write with their left hand and they worked very hard at converting them to being right-handed because they interpreted this passage so literally they completely missed Jesus' point. At the end of verse 29 and 30, the seriousness of falling to this temptation is made even more intense by the reference to hell, the Greek term Gehenna. It implies final judgment and eternal torment. Jesus is trying to make certain that people realize the importance of the issue. He's talking about repeated, unrepentant going to this. Now in verse 30, he instead centers on the hand instead of the eye. It points to putting into action what the eye has initiated, symbolically speaking. Just like last week, nobody ever thinks about, nobody ever hurts someone else unless they have thought about it at some point. Now, I would suggest something to you, and I want to ask you to please hear this, because... If we believe that we're secure in our salvation, that somebody who God's called to faith and they've come to faith, if we believe they are secure in that and they don't fall from that, then we're probably talking about a struggling, backslidden believer that's in need of our prayers. Very often, challenges like this is something that people will come to their church family and ask for help, and historically, all they received was judgment. 
If they're sincerely asking for help and sincerely seeking healing, I think we need to be careful of our attitudes on that. And I'll touch base a little more on that near the end. I guess my point is that somebody who has made these mistakes in the past should never think they're forever condemned. I mean, if that statement were true, so much of what Jesus teaches would be untrue. The thief on the cross was being put to death because he probably had put many to death himself. The woman caught in the act of adultery was forgiven by Jesus. I have a hunch she wasn't alone when she was doing that, by the way. But for some reason, the focus seemed to be on that. That's because Jesus knew what those Pharisees were really up to. We have to understand the key point. Forgiveness and redemption is available to anyone who will admit that what they are doing is wrong. Their desire and their effort to walk away from their weakness is what shows their true faith and their true focus. That's vital. We have to understand that the reality is these issues are sin, but we can't be unbiblically harsh. The challenge is that we live in an age that has some things that wasn't so prevalent even 20 years ago. You guys familiar with something called the Me Too movement? Well, there's a Church Too movement. And part of that is because of very sad, unfortunate incidences that have happened in the church setting over the years. I think it's one of the reasons why Jesus tells us, be deliberate, take specific measures before it's too late. It's not a new issue, but I think sources of temptation are so much more available so much more easily than they were even 20 years ago. People are generally less willing to face the damage that it causes. But we also have to recognize that there is hope. There is forgiveness and restoration. We can't create a second unforgivable sin. You know, there's the one that the Bible refers to as the unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Many people wonder, yeah, what does that look like? How do I know if I've committed that? I think I'm going to preach on that this summer at the end of this series. But I'll give you the short answer to begin with. A true believer, the Holy Spirit won't let them commit that sin. That's why they're a true believer. But let's take a look at one other term. Looketh. He who looketh upon another person lustfully. The Greek term blepo. And what it means is, for those of you who are the grammar Nazis in the room, it's a present tense participle. It means keeps on looking. It's not a glance, it's an ongoing gaze. The first look is not what gets you into trouble. It's the second and third and fourth look. It's the case of whiplash as you're walking around in the mall or the prolonged look in the rearview mirror while you're driving. But I want to again reiterate something else. That attraction of beauty between the genders, it's something that God gave to us as a good gift and he portrays it as that in the Bible. Satan takes what is good and pure and tempts us to misuse it. That's what sin does. It's not wrong to see somebody else and say, look at how beautiful that person is. Look how attractive they are. The wrongness is to dwell on it. Martin Luther had a phrase about this. He's one of my favorites. He must have been an interesting character. Here's the quote, you cannot stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop that bird from building a nest in your hair. <laughs> right? 
In other words, put some space between you and those things or those individuals that seem to tempt you to sin, whether in this way or in another way. So let's get ready and wrap this up. Probably the most edgy topic I've addressed with you in the nine and a half months that Terry and I have been with you. But it's important. It's important. Here's the reality. Lust can happen a lot longer, lot younger than you might think. And even if you're quite elderly, well, your body may not be capable, your mind is every bit as capable to sin in this area. And as comfortable as it may be to hear, this message is essential for us. It goes directly along with last week's message about not letting anger get a foothold in your life because it will do to your walk of faith and your relationship with God. But in these four verses, here's the bottom line. God's design for intimacy has always been within a specific structure, a structure of God's own creation, the institution known as marriage, the spiritual and physical union of one man and one woman, and the intention is that is as long as they both shall live. We live in a fallen world, and so sometimes those marriages fail. What we don't have the right to do is attempt to deny what Jesus had said, just as we don't have the right to attempt to, to place laws and penalties in there that Jesus didn't say. There's law and there's grace. Sometimes we're heavier on the law and we're weak on the grace. Sometimes people are the other way around to the point where they, they lessen the sin. We need fully both. We need to recognize when something is sin. We need to recognize there is grace and restoration and forgiveness because Christ's blood is sufficient for all. If we ever fall into one of these traps, like what Karen talked about, a trap in which we begin to start thinking God's grace and Christ's blood is sufficient for all sins, except something related to this topic. You fall into that black hole, we got another problem. It's a bottomless pit, and I think it's an even greater sin. It's the sin of actually making our standards higher than God's standards. And that was the sin of the Pharisees. That is the sin of pridefulness. Quite honestly, that sin is way too prevalent in too many churches. They have fallen into an unintentional form of legalism. Lord, may that never be true of us here at First Union. May we always be a church that does not deny sin, but also does not withhold grace from the truly repentant. Now that's a lot to take in in this message. It's a lot for us to individually pray about and to consider. And we need time to look hard in the mirror and ask ourselves the question, what do I need to remove or at least put some distance in my daily life from because it is tempting me? If not on this issue, perhaps on some of the other lusts of the world. There are so many. Money, possessions, cars, houses, popularity, titles, you name it, all kinds of them. The question for us this morning is, what lusts are you struggling with today? They may not be scandalous issues, but they're all obstacles to your Christian walk and to your Christian witness. And Satan is a master at setting traps. Let's pray and let's ask for God's guidance. And so with that ingrained in our minds and hopefully our hearts, I'm going to ask you to take a moment 
to silently pray, confess to God anything that you need to seek his help and for strength and for some faith to put some distance between ourselves and those things that tempt us to sin. So we'll go to silent prayer for a moment and then we're going to come together and we're going to partake in this ordinance that we know is the Lord's Supper. Let's go to silent prayer at this time. <laughs> 